This is the Taiwanology podcast from Commonwealth Magazine, where we discuss Taiwan matters and why they matter to you. Coming to you from Taipei, the capital of the freest nation in Asia. Welcome to another episode of the Taiwanology podcast. This is your host Kuang Ying Liu from Commonwealth Magazine. In today's episode, we will be talking about the evolving landscape of the global labor market. So everybody kind of knows that Taiwan is known for its manufacturing prowess, particularly semiconductors, precision tools, and optical equipment. I believe many people would be surprised to know that Taiwan is also under close scrutiny by major global brands because of its forced labor risks. This might be a very new topic for a lot of people. It's primarily because of uh, our treatment of migrant workers and the controversial practice of monthly service fees that they pay. It's very typical for Taiwan's migrant workers to pay their brokers each month for services, but this is allowed by our labor law in Taiwan. So I think many business people will be asking, why would that be considered a forced labor risk? We will be delving into that today. There is also a new development on the way. Um, I'm watching very closely um, that in the European Union, as soon as this spring, which is、uh, might be a few weeks away, a new law on corporate human rights due diligence is set to make a significant impact. And for that, I did a, a special report a few weeks ago. In other words. The companies will have to change their way of treating migrant workers, and I was very happy to know that many companies are already taking actions, or at least they are very much aware of this new trend. Joining us today for an insightful conversation on these crucial topics is Professor Bonnie Ling,、uh, Ling Yihua. She is a distinguished scholar with family roots in Taiwan. She is the executive director at Work Better Innovations, also a research fellow at Institute for Human Rights and Business. Also, she is the non-resident senior fellow at University Nottingham Taiwan Research Hub. Welcome to the show, Bonnie. Thank you for having me, Bonnie. It's so nice to see you. I wish I was in Taipei with you in person. So,、um, Bonnie, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your Taiwanese family background? Thank you so much for the question. A lot of people don't know this about me, but I grew up in the Taiwanese countryside、um, in Gaoshong. At that time, it was still a county. You know, I think now the city has grown so big that it absorbed the countryside. So right now, it's actually part of、um, Gaoshong City. But I was born in Taipei. And I was sent to the countryside to live with my grandparents. You know, like so many kids at that time, with、mm-hmm. parents juggling this. I did that for a few years. Oh, you too.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, th- I think it was quite common.、Um, but that meant that、um, you know my my grandmother particularly raised me. So I have you know my Taiwanese memory of my childhood. It's so much about. Following her and trailing her in Taiwan. Yeah, me too. Playing in front of the village pepo, the village temple, and、um, her cutting me fresh mango from the trees. And then、uh, when I was ten, we immigrated.、Uh, my parents, my siblings, and I. We were immigrated to the U.S. and we went to Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia, 
So it was it was kind of odd at that time because most um, families went to New York or California, or they stayed in California. Yeah, why Georgia? But um, I know why Georgia, <laughs> right? Well, you know, Georgia now is this big international city. But when we first went there in um, 1985, we were like one of the few Asian families in the neighborhood in the school. But it was because my father graduated from um, Georgia State University with um, a doctorate in actuarial science, and he found a job there. So we kind of settled there, and we grew up in Georgia. And like even to this day, I'm very influenced by the civil rights movement because you cannot grow up in Georgia without having, you know, legacy of that, you know, the legacy of slavery, right. and all the struggles associated with civil rights, you know, being so visible. So. You know, we just passed Martin Luther King Day in the U.S. And, uh, you know, my childhood memory of being from one place, moved to another and be so inspired by all these struggles of social justice, Mm -hmm. that was my childhood and um, for so long before we immigrated to the U.S. So I think, you know, I am Taiwanese and I identify very much with my Taiwanese roots, you know, that from the countryside, that from the mad city of Taipei. And I think even now when I'm working on Taiwan, it's all these memories together of the struggles of Taiwan, right? Like how much it had to go through to be at where it is now. And and, and and the aspirations that it has for itself. Yeah, and, and, and it all meant a, a lot for you, I guess. And also, I, I feel like um, growing up in, in Georgia, maybe the education for caring about social injustice, inequality started early for you. Yeah, I think definitely because, you know, it was so visible, mm-hmm. right? Right. And, um, but I think more than that, you know, we had... Even now, we have areas of the city that are clearly segregated, mm-hmm. um, you know, by socioeconomic status. But I think it was also that hope, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was a pastor in in Atlanta. Right. You know, so even to this day, on Martin Luther King Day, I like to listen to his, you know, I have a, I dream, have a dream speech. Yes. And yeah, and it's so beautiful. Like, you know, it gets to the end and I'm always like a little bit teary eyed towards the end because when he's talking about freedom at last, freedom at last, you know, thank God almighty, we are free at last. It is so moving. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, hard speaks not to be moved. So much heart. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's a very strange upbringing, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Very but interesting. Think, yeah. um, I'm grateful for this upbringing because it, it, it means, you know, we work from this place of hope and it's nice to be inspired by people um, not so long ago, you know, who walked the hard road and it's almost like them passing the baton and then it's up to, to you know, us. us, you and me yeah, and so many others. And then at the same time, we have to pass this baton to those who follow, because I tell you, we're not going to solve for slavery no. you know, in it's- this you know, in this right. decade. It's like we're taking the baton from Martin Luther King and embark on this road. So, uh, okay, you moved to uh, Atlanta, Georgia in the States and you worked in Europe and then the UK. And how did you get into the study of labor law? I'm wondering. Okay, I had to smile when, um, when I saw that question. Mm-hmm. And I had to think about it. Because I think... You know, I don't know how it is I got into my head, but I had this idea in my head that I wanted to be an UN diplomat 
So I went to a school in the U.S. called the Fletcher School that has a strong legacy of training people in foreign service. And I did international law, public international law, with a focus on human rights. So human rights and labor rights, they overlap in a bit where there are fundamental rights. You know, so by that fundamental labor rights, we're talking about no discrimination in employment. We're looking at um, elimination of child labor, forced labor. Also, we're looking at freedom of association, union rights, collective bargaining, and then also health and safety in the workplace. So there's a bit of overlap. So I've always been intrigued by that. So I ended up I did end up working for the UN um, in different places. And um, one of those places was in the peacekeeping setting in Bosnia after the war. And I remember, you know, at that time, there was not that much um, wide awareness on what human trafficking was, right? So we were involved in things as I was a human rights officer stationed with the peacekeeping mission. So we were involved in things like, you know, um, you know, raids, you know, um, of Brussels, brothels, mm-hmm. where suspected victims of human trafficking were working okay. in um, in sexual exploitation. Mm-hmm. And it was quite sensitive at the time, because not only did you have reports, allegations of peacekeepers being involved in that, but also a strong element of organized crime, right? So these, these operations were highly sensitive, they were mounted very fast, you know, not that many people knew. And they all involved the vulnerable populations. Yes, in one way or another. So I think that's how I got into it. But what I found through my experiences in this was that it defies a simple understanding. I think we're almost gravitated towards a simple depiction. And I think, you know, maybe social media doesn't help because we're restricted by by space. Like people always tell me, like, you write too long. But I don't know how to explain it simpler when things are already that complicated. So one of the things that really intrigued me was I remember like meeting some of the women we rescued, quote unquote, you know, coming back again after we finished this process of repatriating. Right. So they return to their home countries. And then we, you know, months later, maybe years later, they come back. And I was really intrigued. Like, why are you back you know, mm-hmm. because the first time maybe you didn't know what was going to happen, but maybe not the second time. So then I got really intrigued and I looked into it and it was things like, well, you can have re-victimization, meaning like they go home, they're stigmatized. So, yeah. you know, nowhere to go, no job. Exactly. Or it might be financial pressure. It might be, re- you know, all these other factors that come into play. So I think what happened was um, I saw that it was complicated and I wanted to understand more. So I actually, I'm also, you know, beyond my focus on human rights and labor rights and diplomacy, I actually have a background in criminology. So I I was trained um, in in Cambridge as a a criminologist. So I looked at transnational organized crime. And I think, you know, these issues of organized crime, they're becoming like more to the fore because of you know this the issues around um scamming you know cyber scamming mm-hmm. and exploitation yeah. um, exploitation in that sector format might have changed right but if we look at the core of what exploitation is it hasn't so i think you know i take this long historical view of labor abuses that are so bad 
that it meets what we understand as slavery or slaver. So I think, you know, by taking such a long historical lens, it is, you know, I appreciate the fact that it needs everyone. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking about it today. And um, it's really exciting for me because it means we're potentially reaching more people Mm -hmm. and they can be part of this ground swelling movement to really think about what is the type of work we want for the future? Why is this still happening? Why is it such a persistent problem? You know, all the way from transatlantic slavery, slaves picking cottons in the Mm -hmm. fields of Georgia to this modern form. And where are we going, right? Where are we going? Do we want our kids to be part of this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that uh, goes to the, the, the core, back to the issue of co- uh, the, the justice, I, I think, reparations and remembering the past, but many people may not realize that it's not in the past. Modern slavery is happening right now around all of us. And so, yeah, what you said is uh, actually really touching. So um, let's uh, talk about my uh, my story's uh, topic for this time. It's forced labor risk and uh, EU human rights due diligence work and what that has to do with Taiwan. So, Bonnie, I know that you have worked in Taiwan for quite some time um, doing research on the labor practices, uh, in particular migrant workers. What kind of... Um, problem if we might say that um, you have observed in how the I- employment of uh, migrant workers here in Taiwan, how could they be problematic in for the supply chain? That's a great question. And um, I think it, it took up a great part of our lunch um, yeah. when we yes. met yeah. and discussed this. There are many different issues. And I think you alluded to one of them in your opening, which is the fact that the system of labor recruitment is flawed. So much of the effort right now is looking at symptoms of what's not working. And we need to do that, right? To know things that are not working. But I think if we trace it all, if we go all the way from the branches, all the way to the roots, we have to accept that the current system of labor migration management that Taiwan has with its you know, four source, um, for migration corridors from the countries of origin. They are flawed, they're not working. But that is a challenge, not just for Taiwan, but also others, you know, other countries. So I wanna caveat that because a lot of what we see in Taiwan are, you know, problems that we see elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So there are some things that are quite unique to Taiwan and we're gonna touch upon that, but they're commonalities. But I want to go back to this thing you raised in your intro, which is on the collection of monthly service fees. Right. Uh, in Chinese, we call it 服务费, right? The 每月服务费。每个月的服务费。然后是一千八、一千七、然后一千五。Right. So it's, it's tiered. Mm-hmm. So they pay more the first year. It goes down the second year. And then for the from the third year to the end of their stay in Taiwan, it could be year 12, or in mm-hmm. some cases, year 14, depending on specific circumstances. But it is about, you know, US dollars, like $55 Each that's month. taken from their monthly wage. Mm-hmm. And Taiwan is unique in that, to my knowledge, 
Taiwan is the only place that collects this monthly service charge directly from the migrant workers. And we really have to wonder why. I think when I talk to people in Taiwan about it, the question that the observation that always comes up is, oh, it's a law by the law. Right. It's, it's legal. not illegal. Right. It's legal. Exactly. I, uh, yeah, sorry. It's, it's legal. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it is very clearly allowed. You know, there's a schedule of permitted fees that um, brokers could collect. And it's very clear and black and white in the law yeah. that they can collect this. Mm-hmm. So I I teach a class with my fellow professor, Chor Yufan, at Yangming Jiao Tong And we're going to mm-hmm. teach the class again next month on human rights and international supply chains. So it's a chance for me to discuss this in more detail, looking at international standards versus what is allowed in Taiwan. And I told it last year, and then there was a student who, you know, spoke up in class and he said, I want to know what that service is, you know? (laughs) Good question. And I think that is a very good question. What is embedded in that service fee? What service does it provide? So I think when you ask that question, then it becomes really astounding because it becomes like all the services that's kind of typically listed. It's in fact like a human resource fee Mm -hmm. that is typically absorbed by the employer. And that should be absorbed by the employer because that's the part of employing someone. So what could be the components like uh, taking the, the worker to a doctor or... Uh, so what, what could be another example of the service? Well, that's the thing, right? Because um, um, and I've heard that before, that well, it's like a um, service of taking them to the doctor. It's like service of translating. It's the service of issuing um, the, the pay wage. It's, it's these things. Mm. But let's take it one by one, right? If you say that's the service of taking um, the migrant workers to their health check, for instance, because they're also required by law to undergo a certain number of health checks um, while they're in Taiwan. A lot of it's not clear because there are reports of them also on top paying for that, mm-hmm. right? So it seems to be excluded from monthly service fees because if it's included, they wouldn't have to pay extra on top. So that's one. And the other thing is all the other things that's typically cited, you know, of communicating with the worker, of issuing the necessary paperwork, that is what human resource is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the point I wanted to make with you is if you and I have a question about our paycheck, right? We we call up human resource and we said, you know, what's going on, but we wouldn't be expected to pay for this because that's just part of right. yeah. part of the business cost. Yeah. I- imagine, and I think even in Japan. Yeah, yeah. Imagine if you and I were migrant workers and were essentially paying our bosses' human resource fees. We were actually paying for the HR personnel to be there. Exactly, and I think once we look at it in detail, that is in effect what it is, and that's the argument that I always make: is we need to go be. Beyond the terms and look at what it actually is, and I think when we look at what it actually is, in some ways it just defies the logic. Yeah. And if we look at it in terms of global practice, if we look at our neighbors, you know, Japan, for instance, 
they do collect this, but from their employer, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So in contrast, I just want to say that in Taiwan, the employers also pay a service charge. They also pay, but that charge is annual. And I think this, it's about 2,000. You know, 2000. Yeah, just 2,000 NT. So it's, it's about 10% of what a migrant worker would pay each year. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I think, you know, we need to understand what does that include and then question, does it make sense? Is it moral to ask the person providing the labor pay for the human resource management fee of organizing so, yeah. all the paperwork? I guess the reason why this is problematic is, is that um, it's almost like calling broker fees by another name of service fees it's like dressing up broker fees as service fees and hence legalized by by taiwanese labor law oh gosh i love that point actually i think you put this in one of your articles that yes, you wrote yeah. in this so feature this is essentially the the major problem that i pointed out in my in my story yeah so um we're going to take a short break now and when we come back, we're going to continue to talk about the new EU due diligence law. Welcome back to the Taiwanology podcast. We have Bonnie Ling, Ling Yihua, a distinguished scholar with us. Um, she's in the UK and I'm in the studio. We're talking about the changing practices of uh, labor laws. And why is this important now? I guess we're going to get to this point of uh, why now. In my story about the uh, migrant workers, I talked about a new law that is going to come into shape. That's the European Union's Corporate Human Rights Due Diligence Act. So before Bonnie, before I knew Bonnie, I didn't know anything about this law. Could you share with us why this new law is so crucial for the international supply chain? Yes. So in short, this law is an EU directive. So by EU di directive, um, member states, and now they're 27, they're required to put it into their domestic law, mm. you know, to, to, to put it in as a legal requirement. And those legislations cannot deviate from the main EU directive. So I think, first of all, that is very powerful because when it comes into being, you're going to have 27 member states requiring this. So the directive would require companies to conduct environmental and human rights due diligence on their own activities and also on their subsidiaries activities mm -hmm. and on the value chain carried out by these companies that they have a business relationship with. So right. that, in short, is what it is. Now, there are a lot of details um, to work out. You know, for instance, in the directive, there are different categories of companies, right? But in essence, I think what is so powerful about this is that moves the concept of due diligence into the non-financial areas. Mm -hmm. So we're quite familiar with the process of a Due diligence, for example, emerges an acquisition mm -hmm. when you know you need to do sound financial due diligence right. in these processes. But what does it mean, environmental due diligence, and what does it mean when you need to look at human rights risks? Well, this directive, when it's um, 
I think people do expect it to be released in spring of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to make these like, you know, every part, just a normal part of doing business. If you have a business relationship with a company that's domiciled or has a subsidiary in the 27 member states of the EU, you will need to be aware of this law. Right. So it's actually very overarching. I would share one conversation that I had uh, with an EU official a few weeks ago when she was in, in Taipei talking about human rights due diligence. At that moment, it really dawned on me. Uh, in in the past, you know, I, I think this human rights due diligence directive is going to be really like this uh, carbon border adjustment mechanism. It's going to be as powerful because in the past, companies they they never really cared about climate change, but that changed after. COP21 in 2015, when all the countries and businesses are kind of all required to cut emissions and carbon becomes a, a liability and there is carbon pricing. So that's why everyone is paying attention to that. And I really think labor practice is going to taken seriously in the same way. So that's, I think um, it's going to have teeth and it's going to Kind of force um, companies in a global supply chain to to change their ways. Is that your observation? Yes, I am hopeful. Um, many are hopeful because we already see the impact. It's not even law yet, and we're seeing having such wide ripples far beyond Europe. Right? You and I are talking in Taiwan about this law that hasn't even come in yet, and I think part of it is it normalizes. Expectations of environmental human rights due diligence, right? It brings different people together, learn from each other, and it frames this idea that the you know the the human rights and environmental impact of business is is quite so it can be quite significant, right? We know the cases where you know disasters happen. We 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 started this podcast talking about um, labor abuses, mm-hmm. right? But I think on the Other end of that, and it goes back to what I was talking about about the aim of work better innovations is trying to nudge things towards a responsible economy. Is that it gives us the chance to implement this vision of the UN guiding principles for business and human rights. It was a landmark document that came in in 2011, so it is still quite new. But it talked about the corporate responsibility to respect human rights. And that has been, I think, a struggle of at least 50 years internationally. Right. Yeah. Just to get these standards into all the human rights um, instruments. So I think, first of all, it localizes these expectations of um, business of doing no harm, not causing mm-hmm. or contributing to such negative impacts with respect to the environment and human rights. And、um, it's a challenge that Taiwan businesses need to learn very fast. But、uh, to my surprise,、uh, I think more companies are aware of this new trend than I imagined. So during my research and interview process, I was very happy to find that actually many companies in the tech supply chain 
are already of uh, already doing what they can to remedy or reimburse the service fees of the migrant workers. So some of them, are, many of them, are doing that. Uh, even some traditional companies, like machine tool companies, are also doing the same. There's one company, a chip company called PowerTech. They are even hiring directly hiring migrant workers from the Philippines. They try to avoid. They try to get rid of um, broker companies. Um, for uh, really, they have really worked hard in, in in doing that. So I think uh, the companies are really taking action because. They know this is going to determine their economic future. This is about life and death. It's not about ethics anymore. But you also use ethics in your description.、Um, you call an ethical supply chain yeah, in your article. That's that's yeah, true. Yeah, machine going in. Right. Yeah. So that was my observation. And what is your observation in working with Taiwanese supply chains?、Um, how are they looking at this issue? How are they changing their mindset and their ways? That is.、Um, A fascinating question with many different observations. I just want to go back to something that you said just now, which is a lot of companies are looking at this new directive and putting in higher requirements. You know, even before the law has come in. Actually, I would say、um, it's even outside of Taiwan. The UN guiding principles has had a longer period. Of normalization, you know, it was it was passed in 2011. So I think you know, in Taiwan, the National Action Plan for the UN Guiding Principles that came out,、um, 20, you know, 2020, I think,、um, Human Rights Day 2020. So I think Taiwan is lagging behind a little bit, right? So when you when you talk about other companies that you found in your reporting. That's already doing reimbursements in Taiwan. That's putting in these higher standards than what is required by Taiwanese law. Well, they've had a longer time looking at it, and they could identify where their risks are by sector, by national, you know, by by a market. So I think it's important to recognize that because Taiwanese companies also need to do that. We need to have this clear ownership. You know what does it mean when we say this is made in Taiwan? What is that value,、mm. right? So all these labor abuses that you spoke of、um, from migrant workers, well, that is an area of high risk that we already know about, right? Owing to certain things, like you said, the monthly service fees, but also other fees that are hidden in the recruitment process. But there are other things, things like lack of genuine job mobility. Mm-hmm. Right, migrant workers can change jobs in Taiwan, but it's restricted and subject to various conditions.、Right. We need to understand why that is a risk factor, and we also need to understand. Also, I think that、um, there are risks also associated with、um, the workplace in general in Taiwan. Oh、right? yeah, that's true.、It's, I think this thing of excessive overtime. Yeah. Excessive overtime always comes up for me. Yes, when、true. I'm in Taiwan, when I'm in Taiwan, I have to be prepared the fact that there will be a work call at eight. You know. Oh, okay. That's <laughs> you know this culture of overtime. I think makes us maybe expect everyone to do overtime without、yeah. realizing the risks 
that it presents right. what kind of when we, when normalizing we look at these supply chain due diligence issues. Right, yeah. So I think practically you these this directive and us getting ready for that makes such conversation possible, much deeper conversations. It wasn't that long ago. I gave I gave my first talk on this the draft of this directive, I think in 2020. And I gave it to a business audience and there were tech companies as well. And many of them were quite puzzled just, you know, four years ago. And they said, well, you know, we gave masks. I mean, isn't that business and human rights? So I think one of the key issues that I've identified through through these interactions is that we're still confusing philanthropy Mm. with what does it mean by human rights due diligence? It's not the same. You know, human rights due diligence, it's about identifying, preventing, mitigating, and accounting for these possible negative human rights impacts. And philanthropy, you know, is is that. It's easy, it's visible, but it doesn't offset all the negative impacts of human rights that that, that a business no. could yeah, be yeah, causing or contributing yeah. to. Yeah. So I think that is very, very important, and that is a challenge for Taiwan. It's, it's true because... Even in uh, 2023, we have heard cases in which business owners or managers, uh, they simply don't consider migrant workers to be among their equals. Like they, um, it's, it's just natural for migrant workers to not enjoy the rights that we Taiwanese do. So for them, it's so normal. So I think it's really time for that mindset to to change otherwise they could never comprehend the extent of um, human rights due diligence i think it'll be a, a a huge challenge for them to be honest so um okay my it could be my last question for you is going forward we are going to see this uh, new uh, supply chain due diligence law come into action and what would be your advice for taiwanese companies what kind of action should they take? It's important to recognize that human rights due diligence and also environmental due diligence as well is a process. It's a road. We learn and we need to be humble and to learn from other countries, from other sectors. That means we need to put our whole weight on it. You asked me before some of the similarities and differences, you know, in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And I think I'll just offer a quick one is that there are a lot of similarities. You know, this this uptake of this new idea of due diligence is not easy because it's moving away from the traditional way of doing business where you push down production cost and then there you go. Right. right? So it's new, it's challenging. The differences I think for Taiwan are if we look at some of the details, the monthly service fees. But I think one of the key differences is um, we're not in the international system, intergovernmental system. So we really need to be proactive Hmm. and learn, you know. And that means we need to put our whole weight on it. And by that, I mean so much of what I hear right now about reforms for, for migrant workers still kind of remain on this voluntariness Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. We're not going to take away the monthly service charges in the in the law. We just hope the employers pick up this cost voluntarily as part of their ESG or as part of their human rights due diligence. And that is one of my recommendations. And I say this all the time mm. for the government, 
which is be proactive. You need to give clear guidance because it's not doing businesses any favors either to have such a large discrepancy between what is expected mm-hmm. by international standards, but moreover by brands. You know, they have internal human rights policies that says very clearly we cannot really be working with suppliers anywhere in the world that has such you know grave human rights risks embedded in their supply chain that just can't be. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of it, businesses are generally confused because you know I hear that a lot. Oh, it's hefa, you不是不合法, right? Yes, we're legal, it's hefa, but it doesn't mean yes, it's it's legal, but it doesn't mean it's just. It doesn't mean it will get you that business contract with the European. You know, partner that you wanted mm-hmm. to develop your business for Taiwan, and I think that needs to be very, very clear. We need better guidance. We need legal revisions, and I would also say to to the migrant workers, you know, keep speaking up. You know, reach out to civil society for help, and don't ever give up on us. <laughs> you know, just mm-hmm. don't ever give up on Taiwan because, you know, and I hope and I have vision. I can imagine it that we will one day get to a place where there's policy coherence on issues of you know migrant labor because we need it, right? It's not a secret that Taiwan's going to be super aged really fast in two years. No, no, just one year. I think 2025. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At a speed that's faster than Japan took to reach super aged society status. So that has implications up and down. The Taiwanese economy for pensions and also for defense, right? So I think we need policy coherence, and I think lastly we need we need aspirational coherence, and I think that's something I felt very strongly watching the elections on Saturday. I mean, how amazing was that? The world is watching us, and you know, wow. But I think when we go and we vote and we are proud of our democracy and. Of human rights, you know things like freedom of association, you know free speech, and agree to disagree. We also need to be mindful that there are people who couldn't vote, mm-hmm. but Taiwan's policy and laws affect them very much. And I think that society that we applaud so much over the weekend, we need to kind of carry it forward and build this vision of a recruitment that makes better sense. That fits international standards, and that is more reflective of the way Taiwan wants to be. Right, and um, well, that's a really positive note. And I, I always know I appreciate how Bonnie is always full of hope and optimism. I want to go back to you mentioned how you, you grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and Martin Luther King. Every year, you would listen to his speech, "I Have a Dream." So, I guess in uh, the past. 1950s, I guess what was also legal was segregation, racial segregation. But I, I think we can't just be happy with what's legal, but what's what's right. We have to embrace what's right. You know, legal doesn't make it right. I think it, the time has come for uh, our treatment of migrant worker to change. And um, I think on that note, we will keep working together. And um, so, thank you, Bonnie, for your time and your dedication to your work. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for the, the summation. I am so moved by, by what you said. Thank you for drawing that comparison with 1950. Yeah, likewise. So um, that wraps up today, today's episode. Hope you enjoyed our conversation. And please take a moment to leave a review or shoot us an email for more in-depth report on how Taiwan businesses are improving their labor practices. Check out Commonwealth's English website. Our next episode will be available February 13th. Special thanks to our producer, Weiru Wang, Jia Xuan. I'm your host, Guang Yingliu. Follow Taiwanology on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time.